Let's open the Word of God again to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. You noticed from our study of Isaiah chapter 7 this morning that God made a sign himself for King Ahaz, who refused one in rebellion and hypocrisy. And you might think to yourself, that great verse of Isaiah 7.14 was given to an unbeliever? The great promise in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 about the seed of the woman was given to the devil. We don't care who they were given to because they were recorded by inspiration and then preservation and preserved for us. So that we get to read Genesis 3.15 and we know exactly what it means. And Isaiah 7.14 and we live 2,000 years on this side of its fulfillment. Isaiah chapter 8. If you'll give me the minutes until the hour, I'll finish at the hour. Isaiah chapter 8 has 22 verses for us instead of 25. And its theme is this. God judged Israel and Judah by Assyria for hating his rule and his word and instead choosing alliances and witchcraft. We're going to encounter some terrible things about Judah in this chapter. And they chose terrible things instead of trusting the God who had promised that he would deliver them. There's 22 verses. The first seven verses are the fact that Assyria will destroy Israel and Syria. Never confuse Syria and Assyria. They are unrelated to each other. Assyria is a huge empire comparable to the Babylon that we read about in the Bible and the Persian Empire. It was huge, stretching over to Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, and those nations, and all the way west to Egypt. Assyria, Syria was just a small nation north of Israel like it is today. And we, we have Assyria today that's north of Israel, and it was then. And I hope that you can keep these places in mind so that Judah had its capital at Jerusalem, and Israel had its capital at Samaria, and the nation of Syria had its capital at Damascus, and the Assyrian Empire had their capital at Nineveh, and sometimes the kings would live at Babylon, which then became the Babylonian Empire. But verses 1 through 7, Assyria will destroy Israel and Syria. It was Israel under Pekah and Syria under reason that had come together in an alliance against Judah, and God brought Assyria to destroy them. Verse 8 will be a part by itself. Assyria is also going to punish Judah. Notice it says that in the first clause, and he shall pass through Judah. This great river from Mesopotamia representing the Assyrian Empire. Verses 9 through 12 are a warning that associations do not work. When God has said it shall not stand, it doesn't matter who gets together and how many conspire, God will not let it come to pass. Amen. That's 9 through 12. Verses 13 through 15, God is a sanctuary for those that believe him and trust him, and he is a snare and a stone of stumbling to those that don't. The same God received two different ways, a sanctuary and a stone of stumbling. 
And that is especially true in the Lord Jesus Christ, where these words are quoted in the New Testament. And then verses 16 through 22, trust God's revelation only. There is nowhere else for us to turn, especially we should not turn to necromancers who attempt to communicate with the dead. We have a living God. And the living should go to that living God. The living shouldn't go to the dead. And so that's our final section. Section one is verses one through seven. This is the word of the Lord. You may like the gospel of John better, but for right now, Isaiah is my favorite book. And for the moment, chapter eight is my favorite chapter. Don't push me too hard on that because as soon as I can finish and say amen, it's going to be nine. But it's, if we don't embrace God's word, then we're going to fall into the sins identified here by Judah. Judah wasn't as bad as Ahaz themselves. They were led to it by him. Let's not be led anywhere but to love the word of God. It's going to tell us that in verse 20. We want to go to the law and to the testimony. It's going to tell us in verse 17 that we should wait upon the Lord and we should look for him. Even though he has bound up his truth, his testimony, and his law from most, he's revealed it to us. And let's wait and look for more. The first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 8. Moreover, in addition to Isaiah 7, Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll, and write in it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I took unto me faithful witnesses to record, Uriah the priest, and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spake also unto me again, saying, For as much as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh that go softly, and rejoice in reason, and Remaliah's son, now therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth upon up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria, and all his glory, and he shall come up over all his channels, and go over all his banks. Now I have broken it right there, because the next verse is Judah, and so far that was Israel. And just for your benefit of seeing the division, I've stopped it where I didn't have a period. But I stopped it with those seven verses pertaining to the ten tribes called Israel. So the Lord tells Isaiah, the Lord Jehovah, to get himself a great role, that he's got something he wants him to write down. He gets some scribes to make it official and formal. And he goes into the prophetess. And there's no reason for us to think other than this is his wife. There are many that want to do so. There are many that want to say, this woman was a virgin. She didn't conceive as a virgin, but she was a virgin, and they're trying to make Isaiah and the prophetess and Maher Shalal Hashbaz fulfill 
Isaiah 7.14. No. Isaiah 7.14 is fulfilled by God Almighty and a girl named Mary in Judea. And she gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So I went unto the prophetess, and others will say this is just a vision, but the, he's got faithful witnesses to record it. Not very many people had visions and recorded them. And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. And the Lord told me, you named this boy Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And this chapter starts out emphasizing this lad. In verse 1, we have the name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And if you have a center column reference, even in the original edition of the King James Bible, it will tell you what that means. But we don't really need to know in that center column what it means because we're going to see it in the next verse. And the name means they shall make haste to the spoil and the prey, which in verse 4, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus, that's the capital of Syria, and the spoil of Samaria, that's the wealth of Israel, shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. Assyria is going to quickly come and take the spoil and take the prey of those two nations. And he's going to do it sooner than Isaiah's little boy, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, can say, Mommy, Daddy. That's the, those are the verses. This is so simple and so plain. And so when God offered Ahaz a sign, Ahaz said, I will not ask a sign. I'm a reverent man. I wouldn't want to tempt the Lord. He was a lying hypocrite. And we're going to meet people that hate our doctrine, and they will play with Bible verses as if they believe those Bible verses, and they're really sold out to the truth, which they are not, and neither was he. But we have this son here with Isaiah. And so not only did God give Ahaz a sign, a difficult one to, to read in the 14th verse, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. That was spoken to Ahaz, that the Lord was going to give the Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, in 655 years from that particular date. But when we read the next two verses, it was more than just a virgin conceiving. It was that little boy growing up on baby food to know the difference between right and wrong, which we said takes three, four, five years. And in that amount of time or less, God would take care of the two enemies of Judah. So Ahaz did get himself a sign, but now there's another one. And you know, Isaiah had a sign walking along with him. What was his name? Sheer Jashub. And what was that sign? A remnant shall return. A remnant shall return because that was the promise and prophecy given in chapter 6, verse 13. And so here we have another boy, and he's born. That would take nine months at least. And before the boy, when, when does a child say, Daddy and Mommy, can we pick a date? How many years does it take? Does it take years? Or can it be done in 18 months? Who in here has done it before they were one year old? Oh, I've got one hand. I'm not going to mention who it is or we'll be having baby talking contests after church. 
about 18 months. Daddy and Mommy. Gabby, do you know Daddy and Mommy? About 18 months. So if you add nine months to that, you got 27 months, you got two, 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 three years or so. And before the child, Mahershala Hashbaz, can say Daddy or Mommy, the king of Assyria is going to come and have crushed the alliance that is against Judah. And so this is Isaiah chapter 8. And here's the prophet of God visiting Judah and telling Ahaz and getting it written down in the most formal and official way that's described in the Bible of a, a man going into a woman and them conceiving and having a baby. It is all written down with this long, complicated name that means the king of Assyria is going to very quickly come and take away the spoil and riches of those two nations that have allied themselves against you. And so we have the lesson down through verse 4. The Lord spake also unto me again, saying, For as much as this people, and here, this is Israel, the ten tribes. For as much as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh that go softly, and rejoice in reason, and Remaliah's son. The men of Judah did not rejoice in Pekah, the king of Israel, and the son of Remaliah, nor did the men of Judah, those of Jerusalem, rejoice in reason, the king of Syria. This is Israel, the children of Israel rejoicing in their king Pekah, and rejoicing in reason, their confederate against Judah. I hope that you can keep these few names straight in your mind. The waters of Shiloh that go softly. The only other word in the Bible that we have comparable to Shiloh is the pool of Siloam. And it's in the Old Testament and it's in the New Testament. And they were gentle waters. Where was a pool? And you know about it in John chapter 9, where the man born blind was told to go wash himself in the pool of Siloam. But these waters of Shiloh that go softly. And Israel rejected the waters of Shiloh that go softly because they ran out, they ran at the city of Jerusalem, just outside the city of Jerusalem. They rejected Jerusalem. They rejected Judah to set up their own nation of the ten tribes called Israel. So they rejected the soft water and they instead rejoiced in reason, the king of Syria and Remaliah's son named Pekah, the king of Israel. So this confederation of Israel, the ten tribes, and Syria, the nation north of them, were happy with each other, and they had rejected being part of Judah or part of Jerusalem and the quiet waters, the gentle waters of Shiloh. Instead, the Lord's going to give them a different river. They didn't want his gentle river. The Lord offers every one of us a blessed life of peace and quiet and pleasure if we'll obey him. They refused him. It says they refused the waters of Shiloh by wanting to do things their way. Now therefore, Isaiah tells them, Behold, the Lord bringeth up upon the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks. The Assyrian Empire 
is going to explode out of its normal home country and come and flood Israel, the ten tribes, and Syria, the nation north of them. That's what the promise is. They refused the quiet waters by wanting to do things their way, so God's going to send them some wild waters, greatly overflowing the banks of their channels and rivers, and coming out of Mesopotamia into Palestine, into this area of Israel and Syria. And so that gets us through verse 7, and that's the first part of Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah and God are telling Ahaz how fast things are going to happen. There's a time frame on this. The time frame is about 27 months. Nine months gestation and 18 months to say daddy or mommy. And it'll happen. The king of Assyria will be here. That's fast. That's hastening to the prey and hastening to the spoil, and thus the name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means to hasten to the spoil and hasten for the prey. And so the prophet of God is foretelling the future politically and militarily that the great mighty empire of Assyria is going to come and blow away those two enemies of Judah. Now, this is where it gets a little complicated. Did Judah, under its king, Ahaz, hire Assyria to come and do that? Yes. So did God use that barber? Hold on. Yes, he used that barber to shave Israel and to shave Syria first. And then, because Ahaz didn't put his trust in the Lord, that king is going to do what verse 8 tells us. That king is not going to be limited to what Ahaz paid him to do. He's going to do something else. He's going to flow right on into Judah. And he shall pass through Judah. This is verse 8, the second part of Isaiah chapter 8. And he, that is the king of Assyria, from verse 7, shall pass through Judah. He shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. In this description, we have more than Tiglath-Pileser. What king of Assyria overthrew its banks, flowed out of Assyria, and came down and took all the fenced cities of Judah and surrounded the city of Jerusalem, but could not reach the head? Sennacherib. Exactly. Sennacherib. Tiglath-Pileser distressed Judah and didn't help Judah. You read these words last night. I hope you recall them. But sometimes when the prophet is looking at one nation against another nation, he sees more than the immediate event at hand. He sees that immediate event and then other events following it. We're going to run into this over and over, especially in the chapter that I begged you to read and learn before we started Isaiah, and that's Isaiah 13, where it describes Babylon never being inhabited being like the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. But that took hundreds of years to accomplish. Because even in 1 Peter chapter 5, Babylon was still around because Peter was writing from Babylon. It took hundreds of years. And so what we're reading about right here is that Assyria is going to come and do the quick, the quick dirty work of what God had promised to take care of that alliance that was against Judah. It shall not stand. It will not come to pass. 
But when did the king of Assyria bring so much might against Judah that he reached all the way up to the head but didn't get only up to the neck? Can you, can you imagine a nation being described as a body, especially Judah, and there was one thing left and that was the head? Sennacherib took everything else. The Bible says he took all the fenced cities just a few years from now, about 20, in the 14th year of Hezekiah, who's the son of Ahaz. This is going to happen. And so he came into the land of Judah, and he took all the fenced cities, and he besieged the city of Jerusalem and said, there's no way that you can escape. There is no nation that has stood before me, and I'm going to take the city, and I'm going to make you boys drink your own piss and eat your own dung. And he was nasty, and he was ugly, and rabshacky, and the whole... You know what? This is so important to the book of Isaiah that we're going to have in Isaiah chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39 nearly a word-for-word recounting of Kings and Chronicles about Sennacherib, but there's going to be more detail here than there is in Kings and Chronicles. We're going to get Hezekiah's prayer. We're going to get some details that we don't get there, but there's going to be a great deal of information about Sennacherib and the Assyrians. And there's going to be in chapter 10, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger. That's Sennacherib, just two chapters from now. And we'll be into it next Sunday. So this eighth verse is separate from God chastening and judging Israel and Syria by the king of Assyria. He moves on to Judah suffering and this king of Assyria filling the breadth of the land. But notice what he calls it. O Emmanuel. Though the king of Assyria is going to flow all the way into Judah and come all the way up to the neck, and they're, bare, they're going to be there with their chin just above water in the days of Hezekiah, it's still called O Emmanuel. Because in that nation, in that Judah, Emmanuel would be born. And God was, would be with him 655 years from the time of this writing. But God would preserve that nation, and God was with Judah. God was not with Israel. God was with Judah, and he would allow them to suffer a great deal of destruction by the Assyrian army, but the, na- the land could still be called O Emmanuel. We want our church to be called O Emmanuel. God is with us. See verse 10? If you look at verse 10 and just cheat, and I did this to you in the first service, if you cheat ahead just a little bit, it tells us what Emmanuel means down at the bottom of the verse, the last five words, for God is with us. Because see, we know Matthew 123, Emmanuel in, the, in Jesus of Nazareth, God with us, his incarnation, God the Word made flesh, God manifest in the flesh. And here, the land is called O Emmanuel. So that's why you heard me say that the chapters 6 through 12 could be called the book of Emmanuel. Because it's about Emmanuel. And wait till, you get, wait till we get to chapters 11 and 12. Now don't ask me right now how much I like 11 and 12 because I've got to stick to my commitment to chapter 8. But uh, 11 and 12 are fantastic. It's the ensign of the son of David. And it's raised up and all nations are going to flow to it. We're going to be there and we're going to be rejoicing in the son of David, Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ, God with us, the incarnate son of God. Let's go to verses... Verse 9, we want verses 9 through 12. 
This is a warning about association. And there's two associations. Do you know both of them? Israel, the ten tribes in Syria, Pekah and Reason against Judah. What's the second alliance? Judah, King Ahaz, with Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. Two of them. Everybody likes numbers. Everybody thinks that they ought to sit down. And does Luke chapter 14 teach this from Jesus? Does a king, when he has 10,000, facing a king with 20,000, not sit down and calculate what he ought to do? And if he can't handle it, he should send an ambassador of peace. Well, men love numbers. You know, the little boy that wanted to read how many tanks America had versus the USSR. And how many tanks Red China had. That's the only way it was ever pronounced in our house for 20 years. Red China, meaning communist China. And so we can understand this. They wanted a conspiracy. They wanted to get help. They wanted an alliance. They wanted confederates. And there's nothing wrong with having confederates if, it, if you first trust the Lord. There's nothing wrong with medi medicine and medical services if we first trust the Lord. But we don't trust them. They barely know what they're doing. And God has to bless their efforts to work in every field of endeavor. God has to bless the efforts to work. Abraham had confederates. Having an alliance with people around you that can help you is not wrong, but Abraham trusted the Lord in, in his battles. And so uh, let's leave that. Let's look at these verses, and I read 9 through 12. Associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Get used to those words. And give ear, all ye of far countries. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. That is not a misprint in your Bible. That is the word of the Lord. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. <coughs> for the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, this is the Lord speaking to Isaiah, say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say, a confederacy, neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Amen and amen. This is part number three of Isaiah chapter eight, and it's God's condemnation of their associations. The first association was Israel getting Syria to join them against Judah. Judah, terrified by that alliance, wants an alliance of their own, and so they go get the king of Assyria to join them against... So there's two alliances. There's two associations. There's two confederacies here of nations coming together to do battle against each other, and the Lord blast them here in verse 9 of Isaiah chapter 8. I hope I've said enough about the nations for you to appreciate why Ahaz thought he needed the help of Assyria. But we don't need the help of Assyria. Sometimes we just need the Lord. Sometimes we just use ordinary measures and trust the Lord to provide the rest. Psalm 127 tells us, except the Lord... Build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. 
It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. We should do our reasonable best and trust the Lord for the rest and go to bed. That is how to live. Do only your reasonable best. If you go beyond your reasonable best, God says the extra effort is vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. It's vain. So do your reasonable best only and don't go beyond it. Trust the Lord for the rest. Go to bed. He loved, do you know what that proves to him? You're trusting him. I am nothing. But I can promise you on Saturday nights, he gets a recounting of Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, for decades. I love to quote the Bible to him because I know he understands it. And he promised it. And he, he's, always, he, he's always taken care of me. You may wish that he took care of me better for your sakes, but he's always taken care of me. And I thank him for that. And so I look at verse 9, and this association and this alliance of nations is not needed. And look what's going to happen to their conspiracy. Three times. Ye shall be broken in pieces. Does that get your attention? Three times in one verse? And there's no teacher to write redundant on this page with red ink. This is the Lord speaking, and I, I love it. I love it. Ye shall be broken in pieces. I don't care about conspiracies. I don't waste one minute of my time in a week reading about them. They're a joke to me. They're little boys playing with cork guns in a sandbox. There's nothing against the Lord of hosts. Ye shall be broken in pieces. I don't care about the United Nations. Ye shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, you nations. Come on, bring your war councils together and have a united nations and have a league of nations and have a big powwow and it shall come to naught, which is nothing. Speak the word. You give a declaration of what you're going to do. It shall not stand for God is with us. And they were not able to overwhelm Jerusalem. Sennacherib thought for sure he could take Jerusalem. Rabshak, he promised they would take Jerusalem. They mocked the Jews in Jerusalem. They said, can you boys even come up with 2,000 men? We've got 2,000 horses for you. If you we've got 2,000 horses. If you can come up with 2,000 men, maybe you can put them on our horses and we might be able to have a little battle. So the Lord blasts associations, conspiracies, confederacies, alliances of nations. We don't need to fear anything like that. No matter if people are united against you in your life, if you are living a righteous life and you have enemies mount up against you, so what? Who cares about them? God is with us. That 10th verse is just powerful. God is with us. That's all that matters. So the key issue becomes not learning about conspiracies, not numbering tanks of nations. The key issue becomes, is the Lord with me? Is the Lord with me? For our church, for your families, and for each of you, is the Lord with me? That becomes the key issue. And how do we know the Lord's with us? Because we believe what he said back there in chapter 7. And he'll be on our side. And then the Lord spake strongly to Isaiah. The Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Isaiah, don't say the words, a confederacy, to all them to whom this people shall say, a confederacy. Don't get involved and don't meddle in their discussion 
about a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Isaiah, do not be like Ahaz. Isaiah, do not be like the rest of Judah. Isaiah, do not say, do not even agree with them in saying that you'll participate in a discussion about a confederacy. Because there was great fear. Look what Pekah had done to them earlier with 120,000 dead and 200,000 prisoners, though returned. The odds were stacked against them as far as they could see naturally. But God was with them in verse 10. And so first of all, the people of God get blasted in verses 9 and 10 for their, for their alliances. And then verses 11 and 12, the minister is warned, don't you dare participate or meddle with this kind of thinking or talking. Don't say it. Don't participate with them at all. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. And I hope that every father in our church will never be afraid like so many fathers are afraid. And I hope your pastor will give you an example of not being afraid. I know that the Lord has given some of you some terrible trials. And sometimes I wonder if he gave them to you because you've got more faith than I have. But I hope that I'm not afraid. You know, I've, I've read so many fear mongers in my time, especially when I was single digits. These little people that think they know what's going on in Washington or what's going on in Moscow or what's going on in Brussels and they want to tell you what they don't know and they make fear. You know, this was real. America has never faced a threat like this. And look at the response. It was in chapter 7. Remember, be quiet. Don't be distressed. Don't be fearful. It's verse 4 of chapter 7. And here it is in chapter 8, and it's verse 12. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. And don't meddle with them. I wish I could get everyone's total heart and mind to look at these verses and to embrace them, to resent anyone that talks to you in a way that there is a threat. There isn't a threat. Right. There is nothing. It shall come to, I need a word, not. It shall not pass. It shall not stand. Because God is with us. So the only thing that matters is us coming in here and between our assemblies doing everything we can to be the Lord's, so that He is with us. Then we can just blow everything off. Amen. We can do our reasonable best and trust the Lord for the rest and go to bed. And so, God hits up the associating people in verses 9 and 10, including Assyria. I don't care what you big Assyrians and your big empire are going to say. I don't care what you're going to try to do from a far country. I don't care how big you are and how logistical you are in bringing your big army into Israel. It shall not stay. It's not going to go beyond what I want it to. I'll break you in pieces. I'll break you in pieces. I'll break you in pieces. And that repetition is inspired. I'll break you in pieces. I love that. This is the God of heaven telling us, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid like other people. When we go to a funeral of one of, of one of our own, 
We don't want to be like others which have no hope. We want to be in there totally different. Do you all know the brother that expects me to have a case of good wine under his coffin? Do you all know him? Yeah, we're going to be pouring. He's going to be shouting in another place. Oh, it's in order. I, I, I want and I, I want for myself and I want for each of you to be a little child in the Lord's sight. I want to dance and get all excited when I'm praising him. And I want to embrace words like this when he puts his arm around me and says, don't be afraid like other people are afraid. I am with you. I want to be, his, I want to be a little boy. And God is my father. Jesus said, these things have been hid from the wise and prudent and revealed unto babes. Solomon said, I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out or to come in. Help me. And when the Lord says things like this, even to a man as great as Isaiah, don't fear their fear. Don't be afraid. I want to do that. And I want you to do it. If you're not afraid in your life right now, the Lord is going to bring some fear. So you should be preparing for it. The Lord in his providence gave us Isaiah 8 right now. There is fear coming. But what time I am afraid, I will trust in him. So what do we do if we don't fear what everyone else is fearing? It's in the next three verses, and they're beautiful. The fourth section of Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 15. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. And let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Oh, that's a beautiful verse. And he shall be for a sanctuary. You want a place to hide? You want a pavilion? You know I talk about that pavilion to go into that has all the angels of God around it. And God takes you into the secret of his pavilion and the secret place of his tabernacle. Here it's called a sanctuary. How do we get that sanctuary? You're the one that messed with me this morning. Brother, it was you wanting to bring up Psalm 91. You know, Psalm 91 isn't for everyone. Psalm 91 is only for those who put their trust in the Lord and who have set their love upon him. He then will protect them. A thousand shall fall at their side and ten thousand at their right hand, but it shall not come nigh them because they have made the Lord their hiding place. And let's make the Lord our hiding place. We don't need a confederacy. We don't need an alliance. We don't need natural help. We don't need the arm of flesh. We need the Lord with us. And when the Lord is with us, we don't need to fear anything. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. To sanctify God, we can't make him holy. But we can set him apart and consecrate him and make him the object of our total trust in our worship and our religion. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. Don't set up another army. Don't set up an alliance. Don't set up some arm of flesh or some agreement that you think is going to help you. Set the Lord up on high. Sanctify him. Dedicate yourself to him. Dedicate him as your only God. It's, it's wonderful words here. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. 
the Lord Jehovah is God of hosts. We should fear and dread him only in our lives. Before you bask in God's love, you should fear and dread him in your lives. We should never be tempted to look anywhere else for help but to the Creator God. Efforts to escape chastening or judgment by natural means is an offense to this God. To sanctify something is to consecrate it or set it apart or designate it for divine worship or to make it holy. How do we do that to God? We set Him apart. He is our trust. He's the one we fear. He's the only one we want to please. He's the only one we really care that is with us. And so this verse is powerful. This is a great verse. In the boring chapter of Isaiah 8, and I speak as a fool just to get your attention, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread and he shall be for a sanctuary. Amen. To the elect remnant that shall return, sheer Jashub, Amen, he will be a sanctuary. But notice, there's a but. There's an inspired disjunctive. But this same Lord of hosts is a stone of stumbling. He is for a stone of stumbling. He is for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, all 12 tribes, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. What a difference the Lord of hosts is to men. So what do we do? I don't want to stumble over God. I don't want to stumble over his son. These are quoted in the New Testament pertaining to the Lord Jesus Christ. I remind you again, when you read Isaiah, you better be careful. He is not always talking about events right at hand. He is seeing beyond. That's in the New Testament. The real fulfillment of Jehovah being a stumbling stone and a rock of offense is 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 8, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted. He was a different kind of Messiah that we want and that we need and that has saved us with an everlasting salvation. We don't care about military or national preservation. We care about the preservation of our souls by the living God saving us through the death of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that Savior, the Jews hated Him. The Jews said he cast out devils by the power of Beelzebub. He was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the 12 tribes, all of them, both houses of Israel. Do you understand that? Both houses. Ten tribes called Israel, two tribes called Judah. He was a jinn, he was a snare, he was a trap to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, where he preached, where he was in the temple at 12, and confounded the doctors of the law, and many shall stumble and fall, be broken, be snared, and be taken, but the elect remnant will not. I want to be in the elect remnant. It's very simple. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he shall be for a sanctuary. Is it okay? Can you see it? Because if we don't do that, then we're going to slip into the second half. We don't want to slip into the second half. We want the first half. Verse 16, bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. Isaiah, bind it up. No one gets this truth. It's just for my disciples. This is just powerful. Remember from Isaiah chapter 6 last Sunday, the promise of blinding them? Isaiah, go out there and preach and make their hearts fat. Stop up their ears. Stop up their eyes. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law. Don't let anyone touch it except my disciples. Verse 17 is precious. 
I will wait upon the Lord. The Lord's not waiting upon the Lord, Isaiah is. I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, the both houses of Jacob, the both houses of Israel in verse 14. And I will look for him. Can you take verse 13, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and verse 17, I will wait upon the Lord. I will look for him. Will that characterize you the rest of today and this week? I'm going to wait upon the Lord. I'm going to be there for him. I want to get anything that he'll drop my way. I'm going to look for him. I'm going to look for him in his word. I'm going to look for him in creation. I'm going to look for him in my life. I'm going to look for him in providence. I'm going to look for him in prayer. I'm going to wait on him. I want him to show me his word. We're waiting on him right now, by the way. I tried to write you yesterday in the preparatory email, why are we coming together today to do this right here? To do this right here in verse 17. Behold, this is the fifth and last section of Isaiah 8. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Now, I and the children. Children is a singular or plural number? Plural? Did Isaiah have two boys? Sheer Jashub and Maher Shelah Hashbaz? Did those two boys represent wonders in Israel? Yes. But is there a better fulfillment? Oh, oh yes. This, be careful in Isaiah. Be careful in Isaiah. Do you know where this is quoted? Hebrews 2.13. Jesus Christ is going to stand before Almighty God and say, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. This is quoted there. Verse 14 is quoted in 1 Peter 2.8. Remember I told you, 60 to 75 quotations or direct references of Isaiah in the New Testament. And so we can look at verse 18 and say that was true of Isaiah and those two boys because those two boys didn't have ordinary names. They weren't called Dick and Harry. And they weren't Tom and Bob. They were Sheer Jashub and Maher Shallow Hashbaz. A remnant shall return. And the Assyrian is going to be quick to the prey and to the spoil. It's just. But there's a bigger, there's a bigger fulfillment. And so when we see that it fits what is immediately there, but it's quoted in the New Testament, we say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for giving me the spectacles of the New Testament to read the Old Testament and to see that it's ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19. Oh. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. Let's go to our sorcerers to find out what we ought to do in this matter. I mean, we've got two big nations coming against us, and we're just a little nation now, and we've been ravaged. Let's go to the palm readers and find out what they have to say and see if they can follow the lines. Let's go to the, the stargazers. Let's go to the prognosticators. Let's go to the Ouija board. Let's go to the Chinese fortune cookie. Don't push me. I hate those little things. But anyway, let's go to the necromancers. Let's go to someone that has a familiar spirit. That is a spirit that they can call up whenever they want to. A familiar spirit, a friendly spirit, a spirit that they're used to calling up. And so it says, let's seek unto them that have familiar spirits. Let's seek unto witches that have spirits that they can conjure up and talk to, and unto wizards, that's a male witch, that peep and that mutter. 
because that's part of the deception that this voice that is speaking to you from beyond the grave is whispering and muttering and peeping to you. Let's go to them to get our advice and our direction. And when they shall say that to you, here is the response, people, you ought to have. Isaiah tells his people, when they talk that way to you, here's your response. Should not a people seek unto their God? Why in the world would we go to a sorceress? Why would we go to a witch or a wizard? Why would we go to a necromancer to talk to some dead person beyond the grave? So there's, a, there's two questions. You can see the two question marks, and there's an ellipsis in the second one. The first one is, should not a people seek unto their God? Should the living go to the dead for wisdom? No, no, and no. That's why the Bible loves to call our God the only true and living God. To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And you can see this verse we've quoted dozens and dozens of times over the years, but now you see it in its context that Judah, this is not Israel, this is Judah, this is Isaiah's people, where Isaiah was preaching, were going to turn to witches and wizards and necromancers, necromania. Necromancers are communicating with the dead. Can you think of a man in the Bible that wanted to communicate with the dead by going to a witch? Saul. Lord, save us. I hate it. Listen, I have a few swords and a suit of armor and a tapestry and a couple knights on horseback, but I gave up on that decades ago because I don't want anything to do with Merlin the Magician. I hate every movie about knights that has Merlin even close to it. Just like I hate Harry Potter. Just like I hate Ouija boards. I remember the first time I came home, I was in the fifth grade, and I said, Dad, oh. this was a man who was saved from devil worship. I said, Dad, they had a Ouija board at school, and I asked it. You don't want to know what I asked it. It was another sherry. But I hate all that stuff, and we should all hate it. I hate horoscopes. I don't care what sign you were born under. Do you think I care? I'd rather care about what hospital you were born at, or did your mother get an epidural? You know, I'm in love with epidurals right now. I got a brother in North Carolina that's in love with them too. Credible things. You know, when I wrote and told you, he doesn't have a bit of pain. He can't feel a thing. Well, there's a reason. Just wait till they pull that out today. And they're going to pull that out today. You'll need more than Tylenol 24, whatever they call it. Oh, Lord, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. There's two aspects to verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, Isaiah tells his people, when they talk to you about going to a witch or a wizard, you answer them by ridicule. Should not a people seek unto their God? Shouldn't the living go to the, should the living go to the dead? That doesn't make any sense. And then here's his answer to the law and to the testimony, my disciples. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Right. And here's what's going to happen to them for going to that source for information. They shall pass through it, the land, hardly be stead, that is sorely pressed and troubled. 
hardly bestead and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves. These are people that don't know God. They'll curse their king and their God because he was their God by their national citizenship, but not by their choice because they have rejected God by choice, but he's their God by citizenship. And they'll look upward like everyone does, including a hungry bitten wolf that howls at the moon. This isn't reverence because then they look down and they shall look under the earth. They're looking for help from wherever they can get it and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Praise God. What a difference from having God as a sanctuary and having him drive us to darkness, hardly bestead and hungry and bitten and fretting. My favorite verses in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, my way or the highway. They refuse the, the waters of Shiloh that go softly, so they're going to get the raging river of the Assyrian Empire. Verses 6 and 7, God's way or the highway to hell. Verse 8, Emmanuel means God is with us from verse 10. Is he with you? That's what we want to make sure that we check out today. Are we with him? Is he with us? Verse 13, I hope you got my emphasis. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. It's all wrapped up in one being and that is the Lord of hosts. Verses 16 and 17, look and wait for God that has secrets for his disciples that are bound up and sealed and hid from others. He hides his face from others, but he can reveal his face and he can reveal his word to you. Will you wait for him? Will you look for him? In verse 20, we have absolute and final truth over any source, especially the spirit world. May God bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Isaiah chapter 8. Let's open the word of God again to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. You noticed from our study of Isaiah chapter 7 this morning that God made a sign himself for King Ahaz who refused one in rebellion and hypocrisy. And you might think to yourself, that great verse of Isaiah 7.14 was given to an unbeliever? The great promise in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 about the seed of the woman was given to the devil. We don't care who they were given to because they were recorded by inspiration and then preservation and preserved for us. So that we get to read Genesis 3.15 and we know exactly what it means. And Isaiah 7.14, and we live 2,000 years on this side of its fulfillment. Isaiah chapter 8. If you'll give me the minutes until the hour, I'll finish at the hour. Isaiah chapter 8 has 22 verses for us instead of 25. And its theme is this. God judged Israel and Judah by Assyria for hating his rule and his word and instead choosing alliances and witchcraft. We're going to encounter some terrible things 
about Judah in this chapter. And they chose terrible things instead of trusting the God who had promised that he would deliver them. There's 22 verses. The first seven verses are the fact that Assyria will destroy Israel and Syria. Never confuse Syria and Assyria. They are unrelated to each other. Assyria is a huge empire comparable to the Babylon that we read about in the Bible and the Persian Empire. It was huge, stretching over to Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, and those nations, and all the way west to Egypt. Assyria, Syria was just a small nation north of Israel like it is today. And we, we have Assyria today that's north of Israel, and it was then. And I hope that you can keep these places in mind so that Judah had its capital at Jerusalem, and Israel had its capital at Samaria, and the nation of Syria had its capital at Damascus, and the Assyrian Empire had their capital at Nineveh, and sometimes the kings would live at Babylon, which then became the Babylonian Empire. But verses 1 through 7, Assyria will destroy Israel and Syria. It was Israel under Pekah and Syria under reason that had come together in an alliance against Judah, and God brought Assyria to destroy them. Verse 8 will be a part by itself. Assyria is also going to punish Judah. Notice it says that in the first clause, and he shall pass through Judah. This great river from Mesopotamia representing the Assyrian Empire. Verses 9 through 12 are a warning that associations do not work. When God has said it shall not stand, it doesn't matter who gets together and how many conspire, God will not let it come to pass. Amen. That's 9 through 12. Verses 13 through 15, God is a sanctuary for those that believe him and trust him, and he is a snare and a stone of stumbling to those that don't. The same God received two different ways, a sanctuary and a stone of stumbling. And that is especially true in the Lord Jesus Christ, where these words are quoted in the New Testament. And then verses 16 through 22, trust God's revelation only. There is nowhere else for us to turn, especially we should not turn to necromancers who attempt to communicate with the dead. We have a living God. And the living should go to that living God. The living shouldn't go to the dead. And so that's our final section. Section 1 is verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. You may like the Gospel of John better, but for right now, Isaiah is my favorite book. And for the moment, chapter 8 is my favorite chapter. Don't push me too hard on that, because as soon as I can finish and say amen, it's going to be 9. But it's, if we don't embrace God's word, then we're going to fall into the sins identified here by Judah. Judah wasn't as bad as Ahaz themselves. They were led to it by him. Let's not be led anywhere but to love the word of God. It's going to tell us that in verse 20. We want to go to the law and to the testimony. It's going to tell us in verse 17 that we should wait upon the Lord and we should look for him. Even though he has bound up his truth, his testimony, and his law from most, he's revealed it to us. And let's wait and look for more. The first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 8. 
Moreover, in addition to Isaiah 7, moreover, the Lord said unto me, take thee a great roll and write in it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I took unto me faithful witnesses to record, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spake also unto me again, saying, For as much as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh that go softly, and rejoice in reason, and Remaliah's son, now therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth upon up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria, and all his glory, and he shall come up over all his channels, and go over all his banks. Now I have broken it right there, because the next verse is Judah, and so far that was Israel. And just for your benefit of seeing the division, I've stopped it where I didn't have a period. But I stopped it with those seven verses pertaining to the ten tribes called Israel. So the Lord tells Isaiah, the Lord Jehovah, to get himself a great role, that he's got something he wants him to write down. He gets some scribes to make it official and formal. And he goes into the prophetess. And there's no reason for us to think other than this is his wife. There are many that want to do so. There are many that want to say, this woman was a virgin. She didn't conceive as a virgin, but she was a virgin, and they're trying to make Isaiah and the prophetess and Maher Shalal Hashbaz fulfill Isaiah 7.14. No. Isaiah 7.14 is fulfilled by God Almighty and a girl named Mary in Judea, and she gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So I went unto the prophetess, and others will say this is just a vision, but the, he's got faithful witnesses to record it. Not very many people had visions and recorded them. And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son, and the Lord told me, you name this boy Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And this chapter starts out emphasizing this lad. In verse 1, we have the name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And if you have a center column reference, even in the original edition of the King James Bible, it will tell you what that means. But we don't really need to know in that center column what it means because we're going to see it in the next verse. And the name means they shall make haste to the spoil and the prey, which in verse 4, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus, that's the capital of Syria, and the spoil of Samaria, that's the wealth of Israel, shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. Assyria is going to quickly come and take the spoil and take the prey of those two nations. And he's going to do it sooner than 
Isaiah's little boy, Maher Shallow Hashbaz, can say, Mommy, Daddy. That's the, those are the verses. This is so simple and so plain. And so when God offered Ahaz a sign, Ahaz said, I will not ask a sign. I'm a reverent man. I wouldn't want to tempt the Lord. He was a lying hypocrite. And we're going to meet people that hate our doctrine and they will play with Bible verses as if they believe those Bible verses and they're really sold out to the truth, which they are not. And neither was he. But we have this son here with Isaiah. And so not only did God give Ahaz a sign, a difficult one to, to read in the 14th verse, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. That was spoken to Ahaz that the Lord was going to give the Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, in 655 years from that particular date. But when we read the next two verses, it was more than just a virgin conceiving. It was that little boy growing up on baby food to know the difference between right and wrong, which we said takes three, four, five years. And in that amount of time or less, God would take care of the two enemies of Judah. So Ahaz did get himself a sign, but now there's another one. And you know, Isaiah had a sign walking along with him. What was his name? Sheer Jashub. And what was that sign? A remnant shall return. A remnant shall return because that was the promise and prophecy given in chapter 6, verse 13. And so here we have another boy, and he's born. That would take nine months at least. And before the boy, when, when does a child say, Daddy and Mommy, can we pick a date? How many years does it take? Does it take years? Or can it be done in 18 months? Who in here has done it before they were one year old? Oh, I've got one hand. I'm not going to mention who it is or we'll be having baby talking contests after church. About 18 months. Daddy and Mommy. Gabby? Do you know daddy and mommy? About 18 months. So if you add nine months to that, you got 27 months, you got two, 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 three years or so. And before the child, Mahershala Hashbaz, can say daddy or mommy, the king of Assyria is going to come and have crushed the alliance that is against Judah. And so this is Isaiah chapter 8. And here's the prophet of God visiting Judah and telling Ahaz and getting it written down in the most formal and official way that's described in the Bible of... Uh, a man going into a woman and them conceiving and having a baby, it is all written down with this long, complicated name that means the king of Assyria is going to very quickly come and take away the spoil and riches of those two nations that have allied themselves against you. And so we have the lesson down through verse 4. The Lord spake also unto me again, saying, For as much as this people... And here, this is Israel, the ten tribes. For as much as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh that go softly and rejoice in reason and Remaliah's son, the men of Judah did not rejoice in Pekah, the king of Israel and the son of Remaliah, nor did the men of Judah, those of Jerusalem, rejoice in reason, the king of Syria. This is Israel, the children of Israel rejoicing in their king Pekah 
and rejoicing in reason, their confederate against Judah. I hope that you can keep these few names straight in your mind. The waters of Shiloh that go softly. The only other word in the Bible that we have comparable to Shiloh is the pool of Siloam. And it's in the Old Testament and it's in the New Testament. And they were gentle waters. Where was a pool? And you know about it in John chapter 9, where the man born blind was told to go wash himself in the pool of Siloam. But these waters of Shiloh that go softly. And Israel rejected the waters of Shiloh that go softly because they ran out. They ran at the city of Jerusalem. Just outside the city of Jerusalem, they rejected Jerusalem. They rejected Judah to set up their own nation of the ten tribes called Israel. So they rejected the soft water, and they instead rejoiced in reason, the king of Syria, and Remaliah's son, named Pekah, the king of Israel. So this confederation of Israel, the ten tribes, and Syria, the nation north of them, were happy with each other, and they had rejected being part of Judah, or part of Jerusalem, and the quiet waters, the gentle waters of Shiloh. Instead, the Lord's going to give them a different river. They didn't want his gentle river. The Lord offers every one of us a blessed life of peace and quiet and pleasure if we'll obey him. They refused him. It says they refused the waters of Shiloh by wanting to do things their way. Now therefore, Isaiah tells them, Behold, the Lord bringeth up upon the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks. The Assyrian Empire is going to explode out of its normal home country and come and flood Israel, the ten tribes, and Syria, the nation north of them. That's what the promise is. They refused the quiet waters by wanting to do things their way, so God's going to send them some wild waters, greatly overflowing the banks of their channels and rivers, and coming out of Mesopotamia into Palestine, into this area of Israel and Syria. And so that gets us through verse 7, and that's the first part of Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah and God are telling Ahaz how fast things are going to... There's a time frame on this. The time frame is about 27 months. Nine months gestation and 18 months to say daddy or mommy. And it'll happen. The king of Assyria will be here. That's fast. That's hastening to the prey and hastening to the spoil, and thus the name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means to hasten to the spoil and hasten for the prey. And so the prophet of God is foretelling the future politically and militarily that the great mighty empire of Assyria is going to come and blow away those two enemies of Judah. Now this is where it gets a little complicated. Did Judah, under its king, Ahaz, hire Assyria to come and do that? Yes. So did God use that barber? Hold on. Yes, he used that barber. 
to shave Israel and to shave Syria first. And then, because Ahaz didn't put his trust in the Lord, that king is going to do what verse 8 tells us. That king is not going to be limited to what Ahaz paid him to do. He's going to do something else. He's going to flow right on into Judah. And he shall pass through Judah. This is verse 8, the second part of Isaiah chapter 8. And he, that is the king of Assyria, from verse 7, shall pass through Judah. He shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. In this description, we have more than Tiglath-Pileser. What king of Assyria overthrew its banks, flowed out of Assyria, and came down and took all the fenced cities of Judah and surrounded the city of Jerusalem, but could not reach the head? Sennacherib. Exactly, Sennacherib. Tiglath-Pileser distressed Judah and didn't help Judah. You read these words last night. I hope you recall them. But sometimes when the prophet is looking at one nation against another nation, he sees more than the immediate event at hand. He sees that immediate event and then other events following it. We're going to run into this over and over, especially in the chapter that I begged you to read and learn before we started Isaiah, and that's Isaiah 13, where it describes Babylon never being inhabited being like the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. But that took hundreds of years to accomplish. Because even in 1 Peter chapter 5, Babylon was still around because Peter was writing from Babylon. It took hundreds of years. And so what we're reading about right here is that Assyria is going to come and do the quick, the quick dirty work of what God had promised to take care of that alliance that was against Judah. It shall not stand. It will not come to pass. But when did the king of Assyria bring so much might against Judah that he reached all the way up to the head but didn't get only up to the neck? Can you, can you imagine a nation being described as a body, especially Judah, and there was one thing left and that was the head? Sennacherib took everything else. The Bible says he took all the fenced cities just a few years from now, about 20 in the 14th year of Hezekiah, who's the son of Ahaz. This is going to happen. And so he came into the land of Judah, and he took all the fenced cities, and he besieged the city of Jerusalem and said, there's no way that you can escape. There is no nation that has stood before me, and I'm going to take the city, and I'm going to make you boys drink your own piss and eat your own dung. And he was nasty, and he was ugly, and rabshacky, and the whole... You know what? This is so important to the book of Isaiah that we're going to have in Isaiah chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39 nearly a word-for-word -word recounting of Kings and Chronicles about Sennacherib, but there's going to be more detail here than there is in Kings and Chronicles. We're going to get Hezekiah's prayer. We're going to get some details that we don't get there, but there's going to be a great deal of information about Sennacherib and the Assyrians. And there's going to be in chapter 10, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger. That's Sennacherib, just two chapters from now. And we'll be into it next Sunday. So this eighth verse 
is separate from God chastening and judging Israel and Syria by the king of Assyria. He moves on to Judah suffering and this king of Assyria filling the breadth of the land. But notice what he calls it. O Emmanuel, though the king of Assyria is going to flow all the way into Judah and come all the way up to the neck, and they're they're going to be there with their chin just above water in the days of Hezekiah, it's still called O Emmanuel. Because in that nation, in that Judah, Emmanuel would be born. And God would be with him 655 years from the time of this writing. But God would preserve that nation, and God was with Judah. God was not with Israel. God was with Judah, and he would allow them to suffer a great deal of destruction by the Assyrian army, but the the land could still be called O Emmanuel. We want our church to be called O Emmanuel. God is with us. See verse 10? If you look at verse 10 and just cheat, and I did this to you in the first service, if you cheat ahead just a little bit, it tells us what Emmanuel means down at the bottom of the verse, the last five words, for God is with us. Because see, we know Matthew 1.23, Emmanuel in, the, in Jesus of Nazareth, God with us, His incarnation, God the Word made flesh, God manifest in the flesh. And here, the land is called O Emmanuel. So that's why you heard me say that the chapters 6 through 12 could be called the book of Emmanuel. Because it's about Emmanuel. And wait till, you get, wait till we get to chapters 11 and 12. Now, don't ask me right now how much I like 11 and 12 because I've got to stick to my commitment to chapter 8. But uh, 11 and 12 are fantastic. It's the ensign of the son of David. And it's raised up and all nations are going to flow to it. We're going to be there and we're going to be rejoicing in the son of David, Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ, God with us, the incarnate son of God. Let's go to verses... Verse 9, we want verses 9 through 12. This is a warning about association. And there's two associations. Do you know both of them? Israel, the ten tribes in Syria, Pekah and Reason against Judah. What's the second alliance? Judah, King Ahaz, with Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. Two of them. Everybody likes numbers. Everybody thinks that they ought to sit down. And does Luke chapter 14 teach this from Jesus? Does a king, when he has 10,000, facing a king with 20,000, not sit down and calculate what he ought to do? And if he can't handle it, he should send an ambassador of peace. Well, men love numbers. You know, the little boy that wanted to read how many tanks America had versus the USSR. And how many tanks Red China had. That's the only way it was ever pronounced in our house for 20 years. Red China, meaning communist China. And so we can understand this. They wanted a conspiracy. They wanted to get help. They wanted an alliance. They wanted confederates. And there's nothing wrong with having confederates if, it, if you first trust the Lord. There's nothing wrong with medi- medicine and medical services if we first trust the Lord. But we don't trust them. They barely know what they're doing. And God has to bless their efforts to work in every field of endeavor. 
God has to bless the efforts to work. Abraham had confederates. Having an alliance with people around you that can help you is not wrong, but Abraham trusted the Lord in, in his battles. And so uh, let's leave that. Let's look at these verses, and I read 9 through 12. Associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Get used to those words. And give ear, all ye of far countries. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and ye shall be broken in pieces. That is not a misprint in your Bible. That is the word of the Lord. Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. <coughs> for the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, this is the Lord speaking to Isaiah, say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say, a confederacy, neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Amen and amen. This is part number three of Isaiah chapter eight, and it's God's condemnation of their associations. The first association was Israel getting Syria to join them against Judah. Judah, terrified by that alliance, wants an alliance of their own, and so they go get the king of Assyria to join them against... So there's two alliances. There's two associations. There's two confederacies here of nations coming together to do battle against each other, and the Lord blast them here in verse 9 of Isaiah chapter 8. I hope I've said enough about the nations for you to appreciate why Ahaz thought he needed the help of Assyria. But we don't need the help of Assyria. Sometimes we just need the Lord. Sometimes we just use ordinary measures and trust the Lord to provide the rest. Psalm 127 tells us, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. We should do our reasonable best and trust the Lord for the rest and go to bed. Amen. That is how to live. Do only your reasonable best. If you go beyond your reasonable best, God says the extra effort is vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. It's vain. So do your reasonable best only, and don't go beyond it. Trust the Lord for the rest. Go to bed. Yeah. He loved, Do you know what that proves to him? You're trusting him. Right. I am nothing. But I can promise you, on Saturday nights, he gets a recounting of Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, for decades I love to quote the Bible to him because I know he understands it and he promised it. And he, he's always, he, he's always taken care of me. You may wish that he took care of me better for your sakes, but he's always taken care of me. And I thank him for that. And so I look at verse nine and this association and this alliance of nations is not needed. And look, look what's going to happen to their conspiracy three times. Ye shall be broken in pieces. Does that get your attention? Three times in one verse? And there's no teacher to write redundant on this page with red ink. This is the Lord speaking, and I, I love it. I love it. 
ye shall be broken in pieces. I don't care about conspiracies. I don't waste one minute of my time in a week reading about them. They're a joke to me. They're little boys playing with cork guns in a sandbox. There's nothing against the Lord of hosts. Ye shall be broken in pieces. I don't care about the United Nations. Ye shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, you nations. Come on, bring your war councils together and have a United Nations and have a League of Nations and have a big powwow and it shall come to naught, which is nothing. Speak the word. You give a declaration of what you're going to do. It shall not stand for God is with us. And they were not able to overwhelm Jerusalem. Sennacherib thought for sure he could take Jerusalem. Rabshak, he promised they would take Jerusalem. They mocked the Jews in Jerusalem. They said, can you boys even come up with 2,000 men? We've got 2,000 horses for you. If you we've got 2,000 horses. If you can come up with 2,000 men, maybe you can put them on our horses and we might be able to have a little battle. So the Lord bless associations, conspiracies, confederacies, alliances of nations. We don't need to fear anything like that, no matter if people are united against you in your life. If you are living a righteous life and you have enemies mount up against you, so what? Who cares about them? God is with us. That 10th verse is just powerful. God is with us. That's all that matters. So the key issue becomes not learning about conspiracies, not numbering tanks of nations. The key issue becomes... Is the Lord with me? Is the Lord with me? For our church, for your families, and for each of you. Is the Lord with me? That becomes the key issue. And how do we know the Lord's with us? Because we believe what he said back there in chapter 7. And he'll be on our side. And then the Lord spake strongly to Isaiah. The Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying... Isaiah, don't say the words, a confederacy, to all them to whom this people shall say, a confederacy. Don't get involved and don't meddle in their discussion about a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Isaiah, do not be like Ahaz. Isaiah, do not be like the rest of Judah. Isaiah, do not say do not even agree with them in saying that you'll participate in a discussion about a confederacy. Because there was great fear. Look what Pekah had done to them earlier with 120,000 dead and 200,000 prisoners, though returned. The odds were stacked against them as far as they could see naturally. But God was with them in verse 10. And so first of all, the people of God get blasted in verses 9 and 10 for their, for their alliances and then verses 11 and 12, the minister is warned, don't you dare participate or meddle with this kind of thinking or talking. Don't say it. Don't participate with them at all. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. And I hope that every father in our church will never be afraid like so many fathers are afraid. And I hope your pastor will give you an example of not being afraid. I know that the Lord has given some of you some terrible trials. And sometimes I wonder if he gave them to you because you've got more faith than I have. But I hope that I'm not afraid. You know, I've, I've read so many fear mongers in my time, especially when I was single digits, 
These little people that think they know what's going on in Washington or what's going on in Moscow or what's going on in Brussels and they want to tell you what they don't know and they make fear. You know, this was real. America has never faced a threat like this. And look at the response. It was in chapter 7. Remember, be quiet. Don't be distressed. Don't be fearful. It's verse 4 of chapter 7, and here it is in chapter 8, and it's verse 12. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid, and don't meddle with them. I wish I could get everyone's total heart and mind to look at these verses and to embrace them, to resent anyone that talks to you in a way that there is a threat. There isn't a threat. There is nothing. It shall come to, I need a word, not. It shall not pass. It shall not stand. Because God is with us. So the only thing that matters is us coming in here and between our assemblies, doing everything we can to be the Lord's so that he is with us then we can just blow everything off. We can do our reasonable best and trust the Lord for the rest and go to bed. And so God hits up the associating people in verses 9 and 10, including Assyria. I don't care what you big Assyrians and your big empire are going to say. I don't care what you're going to try to do from a far country. I don't care how big you are and how logistical you are in bringing your big army into Israel. It shall not stay. It's not going to go beyond what I want it to. I'll break you in pieces. I'll break you in pieces. I'll break you in pieces. And that repetition is inspired. I'll break you in pieces. I love that. This is the God of heaven telling us, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid like other people. When we go to a funeral of one of, of one of our own, we don't want to be like others which have no hope. We want to be in there totally different. Do you all know the brother that expects me to have a case of good wine under his coffin? Do you all know him? Yeah, we're going to be pouring. He's going to be shouting in another place. Yes. Oh, it's an order. Yep. I, I, I want, and I, I want for myself, and I want for each of you to be a little child in the Lord's sight. I want to dance and get all excited when I'm praising Him. And I want to embrace words like this when he puts his arm around me and says, don't be afraid like other people are afraid. I am with you. I want to be, his, I want to be a little boy. And God is my father. Jesus said, these things have been hid from the wise and prudent and revealed unto babes. Solomon said, I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out or to come in. Help me. And when the Lord says things like this, even to a man as great as Isaiah, don't fear their fear. Don't be afraid. I want to do that. And I want you to do it. If you're not afraid in your life right now, the Lord is going to bring some fear. So you should be preparing for it. 
the Lord in his providence gave us Isaiah 8 right now. There is fear coming. But what time I am afraid, I will trust in him. So what do we do if we don't fear what everyone else is fearing? It's in the next three verses, and they're beautiful. The fourth section of Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 15. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. And let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Oh, that's a beautiful verse. And he shall be for a sanctuary. You want a place to hide? You want a pavilion? You know I talk about that pavilion to go into that has all the angels of God around it. And God takes you into the secret of his pavilion and the secret place of his tabernacle. Here it's called a sanctuary. How do we get that sanctuary? You're the one that messed with me this morning. Brother, it was you wanting to bring up Psalm 91. You know, Psalm 91 isn't for everyone. Psalm 91 is only for those who put their trust in the Lord and who have set their love upon him. He then will protect them. A thousand shall fall at their side and 10,000 at their right hand, but it shall not come nigh them because they have made the Lord their hiding place. And let's make the Lord our hiding place. We don't need a confederacy. We don't need an alliance. We don't need natural help. We don't need the arm of flesh. We need the Lord with us. And when the Lord is with us, we don't need to fear anything. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. To sanctify God, we can't make him holy. But we can set him apart and consecrate him and make him the object of our total trust in our worship and our religion. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. Don't set up another army. Don't set up an alliance. Don't set up some arm of flesh or some agreement that you think is going to help you. Set the Lord up on high. Sanctify him. Dedicate yourself to him. Dedicate him as your only God. It's, it's wonderful words here. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. The Lord Jehovah is God of hosts. We should fear and dread him only in our lives. Before you bask in God's love, you should fear and dread him in your lives. We should never be tempted to look anywhere else for help but to the creator God. Efforts to escape chastening or judgment by natural means is an offense to this God. To sanctify something is to consecrate it or set it apart or designate it for divine worship or to make it holy. How do we do that to God? We set him apart. He is our trust. He's the one we fear. He's the only one we want to please. He's the only one we really care that is with us. And so this verse is powerful. This is a great verse. In the boring chapter of Isaiah 8, And I speak as a fool just to get your attention. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary. Amen. To the elect remnant that shall return, sheer Jashub. Amen. He will be a sanctuary. But notice, there's a but. There's an inspired disjunctive. But this same Lord of hosts is a stone of stumbling. He is for a stone of stumbling. He is for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, all 12 tribes, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. What a difference the Lord of hosts is to men. 
So what do we do? I don't want to stumble over God. I don't want to stumble over his son. These are quoted in the New Testament pertaining to the Lord Jesus Christ. I remind you again, when you read Isaiah, you better be careful. He is not always talking about events right at hand. He is seeing beyond. That's in the New Testament. The real fulfillment of Jehovah being a stumbling stone and a rock of offense is 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 8, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted. He was a different kind of Messiah that we want and that we need and that has saved us with an everlasting salvation. We don't care about military or national preservation. We care about the preservation of our souls by the living God saving us through the death of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that Savior, the Jews hated Him. The Jews said he cast out devils by the power of Beelzebub. He was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the 12 tribes, all of them, both houses of Israel. Do you understand that? Both houses, 10 tribes called Israel, two tribes called Judah. He was a jinn, he was a snare, he was a trap to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, where he preached, where he was in the temple at 12 and confounded the doctors of the law and many shall stumble and fall, be broken, be snared, and be taken, but the elect remnant will not. I want to be in the elect remnant. It's very simple. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he shall be for a sanctuary. Is it okay? Can you see it? Because if we don't do that, then we're going to slip into the second half. We don't want to slip into the second half. We want the first half. Verse 16, bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. Isaiah, bind it up. No one gets this truth. It's just for my disciples. This is just powerful. Remember from Isaiah chapter 6 last Sunday, the promise of blinding them? Isaiah, go out there and preach and make their hearts fat. Stop up their ears. Stop up their eyes. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law. Don't let anyone touch it except my disciples. Verse 17 is precious. I will wait upon the Lord. The Lord's not waiting upon the Lord. Isaiah is. I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, the both houses of Jacob, the both houses of Israel in verse 14. And I will look for him. Can you take verse 13, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and verse 17, I will wait upon the Lord. I will look for him. Will that characterize you the rest of today and this week? I'm going to wait upon the Lord. I'm going to be there for him. I want to get anything that he'll drop my way. I'm going to look for him. I'm going to look for him in his word. I'm going to look for him in creation. I'm going to look for him in my life. I'm going to look for him in providence. I'm going to look for him in prayer. I'm going to wait on him. I want him to show me his word. We're waiting on him right now, by the way. I tried to write you yesterday in the preparatory email, why are we coming together today? to do this right here, to do this right here in verse 17. Behold, this is the fifth and last section of Isaiah 8. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Now, I and the children, children is a singular or plural number? Plural? Did Isaiah have two boys? Shear Jashub and Maher Shalah Hashbaz? Did those two boys represent wonders in Israel? Yes. But is there a better fulfillment? Oh, oh yes. This, this, be careful in Isaiah. 
Be careful in Isaiah. Do you know where this is quoted? Hebrews 2.13. Jesus Christ is going to stand before Almighty God and say, Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. This is quoted there. Verse 14 is quoted in 1 Peter 2.8. Remember I told you, 60 to 75 quotations or direct references of Isaiah in the New Testament. And so we can look at verse 18 and say that was true of Isaiah and those two boys because those two boys didn't have ordinary names. They weren't called Dick and Harry. And they weren't Tom and Bob. They were Sheer Jashub and Maher Shallow Hashbaz. A remnant shall return. And the Assyrian is going to be quick to the prey and to the spoil. It's just... But there's a bigger, there's a bigger fulfillment. And so when we see that it fits what is immediately there, but it's quoted in the New Testament, we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for giving me the spectacles of the New Testament to read the Old Testament and to see that it's ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19. Oh, and when they shall say unto you, seek unto them that have familiar spirits and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. Let's go to our sorcerers to find out what we ought to do in this matter. I mean, we've got two big nations coming against us, and we're just a little nation now, and we've been ravaged. Let's go to the palm readers and find out what they have to say and see if they can follow the lines. Let's go to the the stargazers. Let's go to the prognosticators. Let's go to the Ouija board. Let's go to the Chinese fortune cookie. Don't push me. I hate those little things. But anyway... Let's go to the necromancers. Let's go to someone that has a familiar spirit. That is a spirit that they can call up whenever they want to. A familiar spirit, a friendly spirit, a spirit that they're used to calling up. And so it says, let's seek unto them that have familiar spirits. Let's seek unto witches that have spirits that they can conjure up and talk to. And unto wizards, that's a male witch, that peep and that mutter. Because that's part of the deception that this voice that is speaking to you from beyond the grave is whispering and muttering and peeping to you. Let's go to them to get our advice and our direction. And when they shall say that to you, here is the response, people, you ought to have. Isaiah tells his people, when they talk that way to you, here's your response. Should not a people seek unto their God? Why in the world would we go to a sorceress? Why would we go to a witch or a wizard? Why would we go to a necromancer to talk to some dead person beyond the grave? So there's, a, there's two questions. You can see the two question marks, and there's an ellipsis in the second one. The first one is, should not a people seek unto their God? Should the living go to the dead for wisdom? No. No and no. That's why the Bible loves to call our God the only true and living God to the law and to the testimony if they speak not according to this word it is because there is no light in them and you can see this verse we've quoted dozens and dozens of times over the years but now you see it in its context that Judah this is not Israel this is Judah this is Isaiah's people where Isaiah was preaching we're going to turn to witches and wizards and necromancers Necromania. Necromancers are communicating with the dead. 
can you think of a man in the Bible that wanted to communicate with the dead by going to a witch? Saul. Lord, save us. I hate it. Listen, I have a few swords and a suit of armor and a tapestry and a couple knights on horseback, but I gave up on that decades ago because I don't want anything to do with Merlin the Magician. I hate every movie about knights that has Merlin even close to it. Just like I hate Harry Potter. Just like I hate Ouija boards. I remember the first time I came home, I was in the fifth grade, and I said, Dad, this was a man who was saved from devil worship. I said, Dad, they had a Ouija board at school, and I asked it. You don't want to know what I asked it. It was another sherry. I hate all that stuff, and we should all hate it. I hate horoscopes. I don't care what sign you were born under. Do you think I care? I'd rather care about what hospital you were born at, or did your mother get an epidural? You know, I'm in love with epidurals right now. I got a brother in North Carolina that's in love with them too. Incredible things. You know, when I wrote and told you, he doesn't have a bit of pain. He can't feel a thing. Well, there's a reason. Just wait till they pull that out today. And they're going to pull that out today. You'll need more than Tylenol 24, whatever they call it. Oh, Lord, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. There's two aspects to verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, Isaiah tells his people, when they talk to you about going to a witch or a wizard, you answer them by ridicule. Should not a people seek unto their God? Shouldn't the living go to the, should the living go to the dead? That doesn't make any sense. And then here's his answer to the law and to the testimony, my disciples. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Right. And here's what's going to happen to them for going to that source for information. They shall pass through it, the land, hardly bestead, that is sorely pressed and troubled, hardly bestead and hungry, and it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves. These are people that don't know God. They'll curse their king and their God because he was their God by their national citizenship, but not by their choice because they have rejected God by choice, but he's their God by citizenship. And they'll look upward like everyone does, including a hungry bitten wolf that howls at the moon. This isn't reverence because then they look down and they shall look under the earth. They're looking for help from wherever they can get it and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. Praise God. What a difference from having God as a sanctuary and having him drive us to darkness, hardly bestead and hungry and bitten and fretting. My favorite verses in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, my way or the highway. They refuse the, the waters of Shiloh that go softly, so they're going to get the raging river of the Assyrian Empire. Verses 6 and 7, God's way or the highway to hell. Verse 8, Emmanuel means God is with us from verse 10. Is he with you? That's what we want to make sure that we check out today. Are we with him? Is he with us? Verse 13, 
I hope you got my emphasis. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. It's all wrapped up in one being, and that is the Lord of hosts. Verses 16 and 17, look and wait for God that has secrets for his disciples that are bound up and sealed and hid from others. He hides his face from others, but he can reveal his face and he can reveal his word to you. Will you wait for him? Will you look for him? In verse 20, we have absolute and final truth over any source, especially the spirit world. May God bless the preaching of his word.